Hello, everyone, and welcome to Las Musas podcast. My name is Loren Sala, and I am the author of Mi Casa is My Home, out September 7th this year. Uh, today, I'm joined by a ton of beautiful authors. We've got Lakin Zaya Kemp, Terry Catasus Jennings, Zoraida Cordova, Lulu Delacre, and Alexandra Diaz. <laughs> today, on this episode of Ask a Musa, we'll be talking about advanced sizes, financial safety nets, and things we wish we'd known before becoming full time authors. Uh, let's see, Lakin, would you start us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little about your book, please? Yeah, I'm Lakin Zay Kemp, and I'm a Chicana author living in Austin, Texas. Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet is my debut novel from Little Brown, came out in April of this year. And it's a YA contemporary romance about first love, familial expectations, the power of food, and finding where you belong set in a Mexican restaurant that is the heart of a fiercely loyal Chicana community. Not only does that sound awesome, but I love how, like, that is a great pitch you got going right there. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Terry, you're next. Tell us something about yourself and your book. My name is Terry Catasus Jennings, and I am a Cuban author, and I'm the author of the Definitely Dominguita series. And Dominguita is a Cuban-American third grader whose abuela read her the classics as bedtime stories. Uh, but now that Abuela is getting a little old and she can't remember things, Abuela has to move away. So to stay close to Abuela, Dominguita reads the classics, which gets her in trouble because she, um, the, the bully of the uh, class calls her out and says, you only read because you don't have any friends. Well, she says, no, I am studying to be a knight. And that is the beginning of her beginning to pretend that she is a knight or a pirate like in Treasure Island or a musketeer. Um, and um, the books came, came out in March of this year, the first two books. I have one more coming out in August and the last one, Sherlock Dom comes out in November. They're from Simon & Schuster and they're beautifully illustrated by Fatima Anaya. Thank you. Beautiful. All right, Zoraida, it's your turn. Tell us about you and your book. Hi, I'm Zoraida Cordova. I'm the author of several books, including the Brooklyn Bruja series. Uh, I write middle grade romance and uh, I have my adult fantasy debut in September of this year. Uh, it's called The Inheritance of Rakita Divina and it's a multi-generational magical realism uh, novel set in the US and Ecuador about three cousins who inherit this power and have to figure out where it came from. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Lulu, you're up next. Lulu, and I'm from Puerto Rico, and I've been doing books since 1980, and I have 43 books uh, under my name. My last book is a picture book. I, I do picture books as well as uh, beginning, beginning readers, as well as uh, middle grade. That's it. Not, no way. But uh, my last picture book is Lucy Source, and it's a book about a girl born without a shadow. And when Lucy um, realizes that her difference is her strength, she realizes she has more power than she ever thought, even a superpower, a superpower within every and each one of us. Mm, intriguing. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Alexandra, you're next. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Alexandra Diaz. I am Puerto Rican-born, Cuban-American, um, and I am the author of The Only Road, The Crossroads, and Santiago's Road Home, all three which are modern-day immigration novels. Um, I have also written a couple of young adult novels which are currently out of print. Great. All right, everybody sounds like they've got so many great projects going on. My name is Loren again. My book is, the newest one is uh, Mi Casa is My Home. And it is just a sweet love poem to where we grew up and our house and all the beautiful things within it, the cozy plants, the jars of habichuelas. Oh, I am Puerto Rican and Spanish. And um, yeah, it's, it follows uh, the main character, Lucia, and she just takes us through her family and her house and shows us how much she loves it. My previous picture books are called um, You Made Me a Mother and You Made Me a Dad, available wherever books are sold. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's get into it. This is one of my favorite topics ever, money, finances. I wish we all were just more clear on them so people wouldn't think I'm so rich all the time just because I'm an author. <laughs> so the first question is just let's talk numbers. So what is the average advance for a newbie versus an established author illustrator? And are you comfortable sharing the advance of your last book? Lakin, how about you? So I have sold in several different age categories and across genres. And after talking with other authors in my debut group who have already, you know, sold beyond that first book and talking to other authors I know who are farther along in their career than me, I personally do not have a definitive answer to this first question. I'm hoping that some of the authors here who are more experienced maybe can actually attach some ballpark numbers to this. Um, but I do have a couple of resources that I tend to share, which I will link in the show notes. Um, author Hannah Holt, she has a blog that has some older posts on it that might still be relevant, might not be, but she conducted a big survey in 2017 of authors in middle grade and young adult, including questions about the size of their advances. And she has all of the data organized in these um, graphs and charts. And then I'll also link to the master spreadsheet that was created as a result of the publishing paid me hashtag created by author LL McKinney. That spreadsheet is a little overwhelming, but if you just focus on the genre and age category that you write in or that you're currently querying or going out on sub with, then I think you can extrapolate some valuable information from the data that's there. I will say that for my first book deal, I benefited greatly from the fact that it was comped to I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica Sanchez. That book was such a huge success. And even though it's not always beneficial when publishers comp our books internally to other books that share the same identity rep, it ended up benefiting me in this specific situation. So I got a really large advance. And because it was a two book deal, it took me into the six figures. Also, there was some competition. More than one publishing house was interested in the book. And even though it didn't officially go to auction, I feel that that increased the amounts of each of the preemptive offers that we received. So the offer I ended up taking was 75K per book from Little Brown for my debut plus my sophomore YA novel. Wow, great. Thank you for that. Uh, Terry, how about you? Okay, I'm, I'm, you got to take a lot of zeros off of that 75 to get to where I am on my, on my last book. But I tell you what, um, it's, 
I think that Lakin had a really good point is that we don't know. And it's very different uh, by whether you're YA, whether you're picture book, whether you're um, a, you know, chapter books. I mean, those chapter books, uh, you know, how many kids, kids that buy chapter books don't have their own money. Um, so, and you end up with a bigger house and a bigger house can pay bigger advances. Um, even though, and, and, you know, I have gotten as little as $500 as an advance for one of my picture books, uh, from a very, very small science, um, uh, science-based house. And, um, and, you know, but at the time I was just so delighted that my book was being published. So, and I had no idea that $500 was zero or next to nothing. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the la my last book, which did not get a very large advance, I have gotten so far promises, but I believe that they're gonna come through with it about a lot of that they're going to be pushing the book and that they're going to be sending me here and there and everywhere which I think uh, will make a difference. In the end, I'm telling myself, hey, uh, the book is gonna earn what it's gonna earn, whether I get it now or whether I get it later. So I've made, you know, I made peace with that. I wish that you know, it was something I could brag about, but it's not. But anyway, I think that knowing that I'm getting a lot of publishing push, I think it's gonna be, make a big difference. So I'm, uh, I'm good with that. But I think Lakin had a good point. It, it's all over the board. Zoraida? So um, I have been publishing since 2012. I sold my book in 2011. So I feel like an old dog in publishing years. Um, I, I just want to say that I have talked about this topic with Danielle Clayton on my podcast, Deadline City, where we, it's season two, episode 17, I believe it's called The Bank. Sarah Any who has um, a wonderful podcast as well um, and called First Draft. And last year she did something called Track Changes where she talked about advances, but she's also done um, graphs and things like that, like pictographs and, and surveyed a bunch of authors anonymously to see where the advances are coming from. And I'm just gonna echo what everyone said that it there is no average. And the reason there is no average is because um, there is no union in publishing, right? The way that actors have unions or writers, uh, screenwriters have unions. Um, we're basically just freeballing when it comes to um, what we get paid. Uh, and because of that average and because it benefits publishers when we do not talk about advances, they sort of can pay us whatever they want. Um, and if there is an average listed, it's, it's, it ranges anywhere from $500 to a million dollars, right? And which is not an average at all. So uh, my very first advance with source books for a book called The Vicious Deep, which is now out of print, uh, I got paid $6,000, right, for the advance. And I was a debut author. I had no publishing credits, um, which doesn't actually matter when you're getting an advance. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit in, in, in a second. Um, the highest advance that I've gotten for my own personal books is $85,000 for um, Atria, for The Inheritance of Arcadia Divina. Um, and that had different contributing factors. And so I have six factors that influence how 
we get paid. So the first one is the agent and agency. Uh, agencies have boilerplates with publishers. So uh, a really established agency will say, well, you paid XYZ for a similar type of genre book. There's no reason why my client shouldn't be getting this kind of money, right? And so a newer agent might not have that same pull. Um, obviously, there will always be exceptions. I've heard of uh, last year, a friend who's a brand new agent went out with her first book and got six figures off the bat. She was at an established publisher and the book was very buzzy. So that's probably that those are also contributing factors, right? So the second one is the level that your editor is allowed to offer for your book. Um, and this is based on perceived saleability um, of the book by other departments in the publisher. So if when a, an editor takes your book right to their launch meeting and they have a minute or two to say, hey, these are the reasons why we should buy this book, right? Whether it's your shiny debut author, whether you're an established author with a big career uh, track record that's changing houses, or whether you're like a brand new TikTok sensation and they're like, well, you know, they have a million followers on TikTok, let's get the next amount of money. So uh, if your editor is also a junior editor, an associate editor, or editor lower in the, you know, um, the status, then they might not be able to offer. They might, the, their, their boss might say, I'm letting, like the highest you can go is $30,000 or whatever thousand dollars. So that's another factor. Um, then there's the idea, right? Because nobody actually cares if like you went to Yale and got six MFAs. Um, those things don't actually matter when you're, when you, when you're showing up with your book, right? Cause you can, you can have like be a college dropout and write an amazing novel. Um, and, and so the idea sometimes, whether it's like really, really fresh or jumping at the end of a trend, uh, that impacts, uh, how much, the edit, both the editor and the agent can negotiate for. So I'm sorry, this is going very long, but the fourth, <laughs> the fourth factor uh, could be the size of your publisher, right? So a publisher like Sourcebooks, um, when I, cause I ask everybody, how much did you get paid? Right? Like I just have zero shame. Um, and I've heard anything from $6,000 to $10,000 or $12,000. And there was a point where my publisher would not give me a raise. And they said, we absolutely can't do it. And I asked another author uh, with a similar career path as me, and she got actually paid twice as much as I did. So I knew they were lying. Um, then there's somebody like Kensington, which is a smaller romance publisher, right? And they the first offer they made for me was $2,000 per book. And, and the highest I've seen them go is, is in the twenties for other authors, depending on how much they think. Right. So Soho, which is also like source books in Kensington, more of like a middle sized publisher that's still independent from the big five. And Soho generally sticks to nine to $10,000. Whereas the big five, you know, you have your Harper, your Penguin Random House, your Simon and Schuster, although now that Simon and Schuster's got bought, we'll see what, what happens. Um, it's anywhere from $15,000 to a million dollars, right? There are debuts that get a million dollars. And, and those, but those are very, very rare cases. The fifth factor is leverage. Um, you have multiple house offers, so you can go to auction and that will increase, right? Because if you have a $10,000 offer, but nobody else has offered, there really isn't a leverage. I think you're 
agents should always say, well, what about 12,000, right? Like they should never take the first offer. Um, and then the sixth factor is intellectual property. So when you, when you write a book where it's intellectual property, so like it's the publisher idea, the publisher's idea or a packaging company, then a packaging company will pay you, they will get an advance and they will, and then they will pay you from that advance. So I did, a, I did a book for intellectual property and um, the, the, the company in Glastown, they got paid mid six figures. So they got like $500,000 or more, but I got paid less than less than 20% of that because of what we previously negotiated to a flat fee. So my flat fee for two books was $60,000 and they like got away with um, uh, $400,000 and more of that. Um, and, and, and that's it. Those are all the factors that go into advances. So I'm sorry that was so long. <laughs> it was great though. I, I feel like I went to college. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Lulu, how about you? Well, I think that Soraya covered almost all the ground. Um, the only thing that I would add is uh, I, I perhaps was mostly speaking for YA, um, correct, I think. Um, and I will add, uh, from my perspective, I've been both agented as non-agented. I am currently non-agented. And from my perspective, you know, like she said, advances uh, really according, uh, very according to genre, either, you know, picture books, beginner readers, graphic novels, middle grade, YA, all these receive different advances. They according, uh, they, uh, you know, to recap, uh, they vary according to the size of the house. Um, advances from the big fives are larger than from the smaller houses. Um, advances vary according to whether the author is established or not, and whether the author has uh, already worked with that particular editor at that particular house. So it's a second contract, or third, or fourth. Um, all that said, according to the Authors Guild, the current high-end advance for a picture book average, high-end actually, it's $40,000. And I will disclose that for my last four picture book contracts, I received uh, 27K, 20K, 37K, not necessarily in that order. And these include both mid, uh, mid-size and uh, big houses. Um, for the first picture book I illustrated, hear this, in 1983, I received a flat fee of $3,000. And I was absolutely thrilled because the book was going to be on a shelf. Um, according to the Authors Guild, YA fiction average is in the six figures. I wouldn't know personally, but we all know now that's what I have, that I have spoken. I don't know personally because I've never written uh, YA. But when I heard this from the Authors Guild, I was I just couldn't believe it. Makes you want to write YA. <laughs> I think it, it totally varies for sure in the YA category. Uh, I wish that was the case. <laughs> Lulu, just a quick question, but you are both illustrating and writing your books, right? 
Correct. Uh, that's a, a great uh, question. I am. This is all for both author and illustrator. Although sometimes I will illustrate some of those advances that I mentioned was for a uh, book that I illustrated for another author. So it depends. Mm -hmm. Terry, did you want to say something? Yeah, I wanted to add. I guess I didn't give any of my numbers because you know after going after Lake and I go, oh geez. But uh, but now for a four book a four book middle grade um, chapter book series um, from a large house was $50,000. And then I, I did have, now Lulu's, you know, way in there for um, being a um, picture book illustrator, author illustrator. And for my last picture book that's coming out, I uh, received 15,000. So, so yeah, everything, you know, but that was my first real picture book. Got it. Yeah. And I would say that I agree with Lulu because um, I'm as the writer, I, I've got similar advances to you, but half of them because I had to split them, <laughs> um, which is totally fair. Uh, how about you, Alexandra? Well, I definitely win the award of being bottom of the pack here, uh, which is totally cool. I'm happy with that. So uh, the original question was, you know, what is the average advance for a newbie versus an established author illustrator? So I have to say, personally, I have not seen a difference. My first advance, which was for a YA novel in 2008, was for 15,000, Now, as an award-winning established author, my advances are still under 20,000. So I really have not seen a difference between being a newbie and being an established. And yes, I certainly have not seen anything higher than, than 20,000. So there you go. <laughs> well, me neither really. I'm just on my third book, but I've, got, I've gotten 15,000 and 10,000 for my uh, advances so far. But one good thing about getting a small advance is that you can earn it out quickly and then you get royalties checks randomly in the yes. mail. So fun. <laughs> so it's not so yes, bad. Yes. And I definitely say that that is um, one of the greatest advantages of having a smaller advance is that you do get those royalties. And then you're also not blacklisted uh, because you haven't earned out your royalties, which is what happened with my first book, which is now consequently out of print and the publisher is also uh, no longer in existence. But because I wasn't earning out, they essentially said they were not willing to publish anything else from me ever again because my sales were so low. So yes, there is definitely that advantage of having low advances because you can earn out and it shows that you are a more promising author, let's say. Yeah. Zoraida, did you have something to say about that? Yeah, I, I feel like the expectation of author, uh, uh, the expectation from publishers for authors is just really wild because I have, I have seen friends earn out and have earned out myself in some projects and publishers still have that same reaction. And so it, you know, it's, it's not always about us. It's like, it's, we don't we don't know their end game all the time because nobody communicates uh, expectations 
to us. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Agree. Okay. Let's get to the next question. So can you, or do you make a living from your author illustrating skills only? And if so, how do you schedule your year? This is a really important question because when I was just starting out, I heard that the average advance was 10,000 for a beginning picture book author. And, that, and so I said, oh, I'll just sell 10 books a year. It'll be easy. Fine. That's all I need. <laughs> so let's hear how it really happens. Lakin, why don't you go first? So I've only been writing full-time since June of 2020. Um, and that's mostly because I decided not to return to the classroom for the fall semester due to the pandemic. But there are a lot of really personal things that you need to consider before making that kind of career change. Navigating a variable income can be really stressful and really scary. So you want to make sure that you even have the right temperament to be able to take that on. I mean, you've got to be a planner. You've got to be really organized. You have to know yourself really well and know what sorts of things are going to make your anxiety better or worse. And, and this is just my personal opinion, but I also think that you have to be fairly prolific, meaning you are able to write and finish projects at a pace that is probably a little bit faster than your peers. And that right there is probably the biggest factor in me being able to continue doing this full time, you know, a year later. But before I transitioned out of my full time job, I did meet with a financial advisor to crunch the numbers and make sure that it was doable. Um, and I'll get you know, more into the specific safety nets, nets that we put in place when we discuss the next question. But in terms of scheduling my year, this part is really important because if I ever needed to return to the classroom, there are really only certain times of the year when that could happen, which are spring and summer. So I have to be really certain that my advance checks are going to be able to cover my expenses from August to June which for me means that I really need to be going out on submission with something new every six to eight months. That's not necessarily a new novel every six to eight months. It could be a picture book or an early graphic novel, but because Little Brown has acquired every project that I've pitched them, I have a better sense of what a project in each of those age categories or formats is going to get me. And so I use that to plan as well. So if I need X amount of dollars to get me from January to August, then I know maybe selling one picture book is not going to cut it. Maybe I need to sell a middle grade novel instead. And so I use that information to plan my own sort of production schedule and to set my own deadlines for uncontracted projects because I know when I'm going to need that money. So again, like I mentioned before, you just have to be super organized so that you can plan ahead months and sometimes years at a time. Terry? Yeah, and what I'll add to that is, um, because Lakin did a beautiful job, but um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm old and my husband has all sorts of health issues. So I need to consider that. I need to consider that I can't be as prolific as I would want to. I'm, I am, like she says, I am more prolific than the rest of the ladies in my, uh, in my writer's group on the one hand, but on the other hand, I have a lot of uh, demands on me that, um, that I just can't say, Hey, I, you know, I'm going to devote myself uh, um, to, to writing. Um, I think one thing that we need to remember is that in scheduling your year, you got to remember that, as you're writing, you're also editing. So 
in and that has to be scheduled into your into your time it's not like you're always producing 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 you're you are but then you have to go back and you have to work and even though the edits aren't you know aren't huge and you did a good job to begin with they're still time consuming and in the chapter book series uh, you have not only your edits but you have to make sure that the pictures go along with the you know, the illustrations go along with the uh, words. And um, so editing is something that has to be added into your year, uh, into your calendar. Um, so I, I do make a living as an author right now. Um, it wasn't always that way. I've always maintained uh, another job and I still do a lot of freelance um, I do teaching and I do, uh, I write articles for BuzzFeed and tour.com and places like that. There were a lot more, um, verticals, but they, most of them have shut down, um, in the last few years. Um, but I do think that it, it is doable. I do tell everyone not to quit their day job, uh, for as long as they're able to. Uh, and the reason is because, you know, as a writer, you don't have you know, you have to pay for your own health insurance and you have to pay for your own, your own things. And, uh, being a writer is so unstable. You don't know, you don't always know when you're going to get paid. I'm incredibly disorganized. Unlike like, and like, I, <laughs> I, I feel like I should, I should be more organized. Right. And have all my things in order. But, um, I sort of, I plan my year, uh, I plan, I plan my travel year and then I plan my, uh, my writing year. And, and I'm always, I'm always behind on deadlines. Uh, I try not to be because, you know, you get paid when you turn in your book, uh, sometimes. And so that, that also affects, you know, if you're, if you're the type of person that, you know, you have, you need just more creative liberties, then the stress of getting paid on delivery is not something that is for everybody. Um, but I, because I have, I have been able to find a good balance that works for me. Um, that's taken a lot of the pressure off, but yeah, I always tell people not to quit their day jobs if they, if they can help it. Well, I'm going to jump in here now and, um, say my bit. I think that you can, uh, especially after some years past, um, uh, yes. I would really uh, suggest that you diversify and say yes to almost everything that comes your way. Uh, for me, I have three streams, uh, three streams of income, advances, royalties. You know, this is after time, right? Because like we spoke before, you, you sometimes it's better not to get that huge advance because you want to have those royalties. And then publishers, uh, see that your books are doing well and you build on those royalties. I, I have now books that have been giving me royalties for the past 31 years, which is really cool to, you know, to receive royalties for a book that you did so long ago. Um, so royalties, uh, speaking engagements, this is huge for me. Going to schools, uh, going to conferences because at conferences you make the connections in order to get to the schools and you meet the teachers. Um, so that is another stream of um, of, uh, of um, fees of income and also um, 
flat fees. What I call flat fees are either what uh, Sorada mentioned, you know, writing articles. It could be a blog, it could be an article, it could be an art piece because as an illustrator, of course, I have the advantage of that uh, stream as well. I will do illustrations, I will sell illustrations. So all these things uh, supplement the royalties that come just twice a year, at least uh, for my book. So, you know, spring and, and, uh, and fall. And they supplement the, um, uh, the royalties because I am very slow since I do the artwork and I still do the artwork. The old fashioned way, my goodness, tactile work, physical work. So that takes longer. Um, therefore, I am one of the ways that I work is right now I'm uh, working on the artwork of a book that is coming out in, in 2023. But at the same time, I have been working on a collection of stories that is already ready to be submitted. So I have that lined up. After I finish this artwork, I have the, you know, I, I sold another picture book. I will be doing this other picture book artwork. And then I have lined up the, um, the stories that I will need to finish if I get the contract that hopefully I'll get after I submit the first three stories to the one publisher I'm planning to submit. So that is how I work. I will be working in something and then thinking about what else I can be doing. Because you work uh, in the way that I see it, you not only work when you sit at your desk and write, uh, but also when you are outside gathering ideas, when you're reading and getting, getting ideas from, from reading the newspaper or doing research or just traveling, that is also work. So in any case, say yes to everything you can possibly say yes, because you learn from that. You learn from um, the things you say yes to. And unless, you know, it really uh, goes against your, your, your instincts. But if it doesn't, you know, don't think yourself below because they are asking you to write the, the text for an educational uh, story in, in, a, in an educational book. You know, don't don't think less of yourself. It's an opportunity to learn, to grow. It's an opportunity to earn some money. So that's my bit. <laughs> Alexandra? That was so interesting, Lulu. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, this last year proved that I can support myself as an author, which is great. And that has always been my goal. Uh, but that said, remember, I am a very, very low income individual. So, um, and I'm also very frugal. So that means I don't need much. And yes, I can survive on uh, just my royalties or the first half of the advance, for example. So, but that, that is me. And I know that a lot of people are not in that um, position where they can survive on very little. And then in terms of scheduling my year, I wouldn't say that I schedule my year per se, uh, but I keep my year open. So if something comes up, for instance, I find out that my book is on a reading list in a certain state, let's say Oregon, then I might decide to target Oregon as a place where I want to visit, I want to make school visits, and I can earn income you know, that way as well because my book is on their reading list. So 
I won't say that I have a scheduled time of the year where I do this or where I do that. I kind of see how things will come up and then work my life around that. And I will talk more about being self-employed in the next section. Great. Um, I agree with what, with what Lulu said about having diversified streams of income. And currently mine are having an Airbnb <laughs> and several other things that have nothing to do with writing. Um, but I also do a lot of freelancing too, uh, writing for brands and um, helping market social media, things like that. Um, so, but I just wanted to tell you that one a couple of months ago, I was looking at uh, authors on Twitter and getting jealous, you know, because they, they're so prolific. And I asked my agent, hey, this is a client that we you share. You have this client. I'm your client. How come he's got so many more books? <laughs> I just was honest. I'm just like wondering, you know, um, he's way more prolific. And she shared with me that he still has a full-time job as well. So no matter what, people make their way and might look like they're these millionaires, but it takes a long time, I think, especially in the picture book world where our advances are lower. Um, it takes a long time to quit your full-time job. So like Zoraida says, keep it as long as you can, you never know. And then I think you'll find the moment. I'm, I'm really looking forward to with my new book, I'll have more to talk about with kids. So I cannot wait to go to do more school visits. And Lulu, that's a great idea to go to those conferences and make those connections. And I just, I'm so excited to finally talk to kids and I don't even think they're doing visits in the fall. So, but soon, but anyway, yes, get those streams of income going. Okay. The next question is, um, what safety nets did you make sure were in place before you made the transition to being a full-time author and what additional safety nets do marginalized authors need to have before making the switch? Lakin. So I mentioned previously that I met with a financial advisor before transitioning to writing full-time. And I actually started working with that financial advisor as soon as I got my first advance check. And a big reason for that is because I didn't grow up with any financial literacy. And I think this is pretty common for people from marginalized backgrounds, people belonging to communities of color. First of all, we're not really targeted with that kind of information. We're more so targeted by people and companies who are very predatory in the financial space. Um, so I needed to learn a lot. And that advance check, that first one was really intimidating. It was more money than anyone in my family has ever had. And so there was that emotional component to it. There was the lack of education that I um, needed to deal with. And so getting connected with a financial advisor and using some of that ad advanced money for that purpose is I think a good strategy for those of us who don't have a lot of financial literacy. Um, and through working with them over the long term, I paid off my student loans. My partner and I paid off our car loans. Um, so getting rid of debt is one of the huge factors to me being able to make the transition. I built up a three-month emergency fund. And then I also created several smaller sinking funds to sort of add an additional buffer before having to dip into that emergency fund. And those were things that I did not knowing that I was going to be leaving teaching anytime soon. That was not the plan. Um, but in the end, it made up, it ended up making that exit more possible because without any debt, my monthly expenses were more manageable and my advance check was able to stretch farther. 
And then as has been mentioned earlier, health insurance was a big unknown. Um, right now I have health insurance through a local nonprofit, which I purchased through healthcare.gov. And I made sure to choose a plan that would also allow me to open an HSA account, which is a health savings account. And this allows me to build some extra cushion to cover those unexpected health expenses, but it also gives me a tax break at the end of the year, which is really helpful. But I think the most impactful thing that I've done is work with my financial advisor and accountant to file my taxes as an S corp each year. This is only available to you if you've already incorporated and become an LLC. And it really only makes sense if you're earning more than the average income for your particular position, but it really lessens the blow of those 26 to 30% self-employment taxes. And it gives me more control over how much money I actually get to keep, which is a game changer. So, you know, I feel like as soon as you accept an offer on your manuscript, I would recommend getting in touch with a financial advisor. Make sure that you're looking for a certified financial planner or CFP because they are held to a fiduciary standard by the CFP Board of Standards, which means that they must always make decisions based on the best interest of their clients. And then I also recommend starting out with someone who is fee-based because then you don't have to worry about them constantly pushing products on you that you don't actually need. You're just paying for each session that you work with them and you can maintain that relationship as needed. Um, My financial advisors specialize in working with creatives who have a variable income. So I will link to them in the show notes. They also have a PBS show, which is super cute (laughs) that they film here in Austin. Um, But yeah, if you can set aside some of that advance money to get an accountant and a CFP. Um, I will say what my safety net is. Uh, I'm, I don't think that I could, uh, classify myself as being a person that's already cut the strings. Uh, but what I do in between, uh, is I try to continue publishing and to do that, I do that through, like, uh, Lulu said, I always say yes. And I say yes to a lot of work for hire. Um, and, um, I have, Last week was the first time that I turned down uh, a work for hire project because I was just too busy with my royalty um, producing writing projects, but um, doing work for hire. And I do a lot of educational work for hire. Uh, and another work, way is to work on nonfiction because it may be a nonfiction, a small nonfiction. Picture book is something that comes out quicker. It might be easier to, um, to, you know, to sell, but those are the two things. It's a balancing act because you want to be working on a project that will bring you higher advances and royalties, but still you want to still, you know, have something coming in all the time. So work for hire is what happens, what I do for that. Um, so I think that, when I first when I first decided to quit my job, I had originally planned to save for a year. That didn't actually work out. Um, so I had to quit a lot sooner before I was able to save for a year. Um, and but my I think my situation was a little bit differently because different because I started off working. I was a financial manager at a nightclub in New York, and you know something happened at work, and I just I just quit in 2016 and I've been able to make it work for the last five years, but it's been very, very difficult. Um, 
and you know, the first six months um, were tenuous because I needed to sell more books. And so what I, what I did was I did say yes to everything. I said yes to every opportunity that came my way for about a year. And it, it, on one hand, I, I wrote a lot of books that I really loved, but on the other hand, you know, it just got me to a place of burnout, um, which is also something that, you know, when you write for a living, you have to be careful and be aware of where that is leading you. Um, I've never used anything like uh, financial planners or anything like that. I sort of just, uh, because I'm a disaster, I usually just figure it out as I go along. Um, but, it, you know, it, I think that I, I, I'm also really privileged because I, if something were to happen, I, I have my family to fall back on or, um, and I, I don't have children and I'm single and I just, you know, go wherever the wind takes me. So I don't feel like I have to do all of that planning, but I'm so that puts me in a very, very different situation where I only have myself to think about. Um, for the first four years of writing full time, I just didn't get insurance because I just didn't want an extra expense. So I was just, uh, which, you know, my friends yell at me about, but and I now have. But um, <laughs> uh, those are all of those, you know, big decisions that you have to think about when you're when you're writing full time. Um, I just didn't. And that was my own that was my, you know, I made a lot of mistakes while I was figuring it out, but, and so will you, I think, because everyone's journey is incredibly different. And this industry has so little in the way of safety net that you have to be prepared for, for it to all go away all the time. And that's actually pretty terrifying. Um, but I'm still writing full time. So I feel like I'm doing okay. Well, I'm Lulu. I'm going to chime in here. I think that Lekin's advice was excellent. And uh, follow that fabulous advice. The only thing I have to add um, is um, I, I personally was very lucky because I got a head start because I married and my husband was in the army and he supported both of us. So that was my head start. The other thing that I can actually... Um, add is that um, you really need, you know, like like I said, you really need to uh, to have a steady source of income uh, in order to pay your basic living expenses or uh, fall back on the family. Um, but you do need a safety net because it is, uh, you know, it is work that is, you know, it's not a nine to five. <laughs> so. Alexandra? Um, yeah, so I've been in a very different situation uh, because I have been self-employed for most of my life. I mean, there was a year or two that I had a regular income and a regular salary. But uh, for the most part, I've always had to kind of piece together my income. I put myself through college and graduate school doing babysitting and uh, pet sitting. And although I don't do babysitting anymore, there are still some dogs that I walk on a regular basis. And uh, that for me has been really, really good because I know that, you know, if I don't have enough money a certain month, for example, I can always 
call people and say, hey, do your dogs need to be walked? Do your kids need to be taken care of? I've worked as a barista, so I know I can also get a job um, at a coffee shop if I need to. So all my different kinds of work experiences allows me to know that if I need money, I have that safety net. I have, you know, skills beyond being a writer that I can fall back on. And um, I, I still love walking dogs. I mean, dogs are awesome. So I wouldn't diss that at all. If that's something that you are passionate about and that's what can help you, you know, be an artist of any kind, fantastic, go for it. And I mean, the dogs, they love it when you, you know, discuss plots and storylines and things to them, which trust me, I do all the time. And occasionally I get a weird look from somebody saying, you know, why are you talking to yourself? And it's like, yeah, whatever. I'm a writer. I'm allowed to talk to myself. Um, And, you know, I have other jobs as well, too, that I have done throughout the years. And I think it's just really, really nice to be in a position where I can choose to say, yes, I do want to take this on for the next two weeks. Or, you know what, actually, I'm on a deadline and I don't need that money. So I'm going to pass this time. It's a really nice feeling to be in that position where you can choose what kind of work you want to do. I want to add something, but there's a helicopter going. Okay. Just, uh, I wanted to add, I really agree with Lakin on here with the financial literacy. It's so important to get clarity with all your numbers. And I read something about how the majority of people are scared to look at their bank accounts. And I think what is just clarity is the answer, because when you know exactly how much you have, you feel more confident and empowered to make decisions. And what I I am involved with this financial women's group and we meet every Saturday and talk about our numbers because we're like, so we just really feel like with this, with this financial clarity, you can just be free. So I, I just recommend having, I have like 10 savings accounts for vacations, for something I want to buy or whatever. And then every month I put in those savings accounts and then I don't ever feel guilty when it is time to take a vacation because I can pay all cash because I've been saving up for it. And I think with the, with your career, when, you know, you get a royalty check, you can decide, oh, where does it go in the savings accounts? And does it, do I need it for groceries? And just constantly knowing what you need and what you have is just so empowering. So I just, that's my one advice on just get really clear before taking the leap. Um, Yeah. So the next question. All right. Um, How much time between the offer and the contract and the receipt of the advance? So with my first contract, I got my offer in June of 2019. I got the contract in October and I got my first advance check in November and all my payments go through my agency first. And then they send my agent her part before sending mine via direct deposit. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. (laughs) Terry. Yes. I, uh, the small, the smallest company, the $500 job, that was very quick. Um, my Simon and Schuster offer for the, um, for the chapter books, the offer was in May and I got the contract and, uh, the first payment in September. So that was very, very quick. I get 
uh, half of the advance at, uh, at signing the contract and then half when the developmental edits are finished. And I think one thing is um, that I have wondered is that sometimes I wonder whether the developmental edits are scheduled. Like I always think, oh, I haven't heard anything. Oh, well, this is the end of the year. I won't hear anything until January. And sure enough, you do. And oh, I won't hear anything until the beginning of next quarter. And yeah, sure enough, you do. So I don't know whether that's something that happens, but that's something that I wonder. Now, my picture book uh, with Neil Porter, um, he moved houses. So uh, he made um, he made an offer and uh, it took almost a year before I got the contract. Now, once I got the contract, I got the advance very quickly, but um, it was just one of those things that happened and you can't, and there's nothing really that you can do about that. You can't say, hey, I want my money. It's just that if you wanna be with that person, you you uh, you stay with it. Um, on my latest book, I was kind of we were kind of pretty sure that we were going to get an offer in February. The offer actually came in November uh, of last year. Then it took from November to May to get the contract, and um, um, just still don't have any advance yet. Um, but the book is. The arc for the book is ready to come out in weeks. So again, those different houses, everything works very, very different. And one thing that I think that you need to remember is that the editorial staff has no, you know, very little communication with the admin staff. Um, you know, my book has been progressing since just about since I got the offer has been progressing, just going like gangbusters. And uh, the contract was just lagging behind. And so is the uh, check. So there you go. Terry, I'm going to go to your publisher and send some goons because that's not okay. <laughs> they, that's not, no. <laughs> uh, they need to pay you because if you, I, I actually, my new policy is I don't start working until I have my contract. Uh, so if, if a publisher wants me to get ahead on a, get started on a project, I said, great, I will immediately start working as soon as I get my contract. Um, because, you know, this is a job and they wouldn't do that for any other kind of employee, right? Why would it, why would they do that to creative ones? Um, I think that for me, uh, anywhere between three to six months, I'm currently waiting for a contract that I sold earlier in the year. And, uh, you know, my editor asked for an outline and I said, I will love to get working on this outline as soon as I have the contract. So just to let them know, because uh, they can't make any expectations from you until, until things have been signed uh, and money has been exchanged. Otherwise there's no contract for me. Um, but it right now, because of the pandemic, everything's taking so much longer. Um, and, and that has really affected, uh, you know, the way that people um, pay out. Uh, I've had anywhere from, once the contract is done, I've been paid anywhere from three weeks or two weeks actually uh, to 30 days. Um, but it should always be in your contract that the publisher has to pay you uh, either on signing or within 30 days, or they have to specify a number, make sure that there's a number or time specified so that it hasn't been uh, in 
unreasonable amount of time before, before you get paid? Well, for me, it, um, it varies. Um, I think it's a little different because um, as an author illustrator, and lately I've, I've submitted mostly picture books, I literally submit, uh, you know, everything, the dummy, you know, both manuscripts and, and, uh, and dummy. Uh, so the offer will come usually right away if they if they want it. And after the offer so far has been about a month, um, once the offer is there, uh, I'll get a contract within a month. And then it depends on the house. Some houses, I've noticed that some houses, like uh, Terry mentioned, they kind of delay that that first amount. I usually have it on my contract since I'm my own agent. I usually have it on the on the contract that is on signing the the uh, half of the advance on signing. Some houses will split it in three, but it's usually half and half. Um, but then that first uh, portion, either third, first third, or first half, will come on signing. Um, you know, literally within the month after signing the contract um, or less. Um, so I think that's that's what I can offer. I will say that when I do a middle grade uh, or when I do beginner readers, then that's a different thing because uh, you submit, uh, at least for me, I will submit you know a couple of stories or the idea and then you get an offer or you don't get an offer. I mean, and then from the offer, uh, then like uh, Soraya mentioned, I won't continue until I sign that contract. I mean, they've had the idea, they had the first story or first stories, and then I'll wait until that contract comes to proceed. So it's, it's a good advice. I agree too. You should definitely wait until you have that contract before you do any massive work. I mean, obviously if you are motivated and inspired and you're like, oh, I got this brilliant idea. Yes, definitely go for it. You know, don't let that brilliant idea um, pass you by. But yeah, I agree. Until you get that contract, don't feel like you have to meet any of the deadlines that they have said. If they have said you have to turn in um, your first draft on June 1st and June 1st comes and you still haven't even seen a contract, then it's not due June 1st. So that's, I fully agree with that. In terms of time, I would say it usually takes about five to six months between the, off, the offer and receiving the contract and then getting the money should be, um, I would say yes, within 30 days. Because even if it says that you get your first part of your advance upon signing, it's never, you know, that same day, you know, it has to go through their accounting department, it has to go through approval, and this and that. So yes, expect the money, I would say about a month after that contract. If it's ever delayed, remember, you have your agent, and you can definitely ask your agent to give the publisher a nudge and say, hey, where is this contract? Where is this advance? because an agent is not going to get paid until you get paid. So it's in their benefit as well uh, to make sure these things are moving on. That brings us to our next question about negotiating with the agent. But first, I just want to quickly add that um, the payment structure is in the contract. And I made that mistake. My first book, I said, I signed it that's saying, 
uh, first half of the advance was upon signing, second half was upon publication, which could be like with a picture book, you know, it takes 18 months sometimes for it to be drawn. So that was dumb. So I hadn't, uh, for my next two books, I did not make that same mistake. So I just wanted to put that out there, make sure you get um, your first half of advance upon signing and second, when you turn in your first draft of changes or something like that. Um, don't make the same mistake because I waited a long time for just like silly little check. Um, okay, so the next question is, we're, we're getting into the negotiation. Okay, it says, um, an agent will make an offer and then make a counter. What kind of experience have you had with that? Does it happen that the counter covers the agent's commission? And do publishers normally agree to increase the offer? Um, I always, I'm my own agent, so I always counter for either a somewhat reasonable, reasonably larger amount or better terms, um, escalations in royalties. And I will say that publishers always agree to something, not necessarily everything that I ask, but something. And this is a lesson I learned through the years, because like I said, I mean, for 16 years I was agented. And uh, that's when I was kind of in the, not knowing anything about anything because my agent kept me not knowing. Um, and then when I started agenting myself, I learned. Um, but it's, I also learned from my, you know, from my best friend um, who's a businessman, and uh, he always told me, you can always ask. The worst that can happen is that they'll say no, but they're not gonna rescind the offer. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that, uh, when I first, when I first started, I was just afraid. I feel like I was just happy to be here. And I think that once I got rid of that notion by my third agent, which is what I'm now on, um, I, I definitely, I'm always happy to push back. I know, I feel like if you have an agent that is afraid to push back, uh, then that's, I think that's, that's a problem for sure. Um, because you have to know your worth and what you're willing to do. Otherwise, you're always going to resent that book that you feel like, okay, I, I begrudgingly accepted a deal for smaller amount than I thought I would get, right? Um, but I feel like first you have to, you should have had a realistic conversation with your agent about what that advance looked like. Um, and two, you should have made a, a decision together about whether or not you're willing to walk away because I feel like with every deal, you have the option to walk away. There's, there's nothing that's been signed. So um, uh, if your publisher wants a book, they'll figure out a way to pay for it. Um, and, and I think that always push back. I think that I agree with Lulu. I think that publishers definitely, they, they want to make you happy for the most part, um, as long as it benefits them. Uh, and they want to, they want to meet you. Sometimes they will meet you halfway. Um, so that's something to consider and keep in mind. Yeah, I think that the the same as Lulu, they, you always, my agent always asks, and I'm very delighted with uh, what she has done for me, but the answer has not always been yes, but the answer has always been, okay, we may not increase the advance, but here's different terms here which if the book does well, then you, um, you, will, you will benefit from it. I, I just want to, you know, add to what uh, I think it was Zoreza who said it, 
that um, you have to, you know, if you're going to accept an offer, you have to be happy with it because if you're going to end up resenting that book uh, because you agreed to a bad offer, that is not a good situation to be in. That said, um, especially if you're still with the same publisher, there are ways to negotiate past contracts. So if you find yourself in a situation where a past contract is no longer working for you and your same publisher has to be the same publisher wants your new book, you can present the option of, all right, I will accept the terms that you have agreed for this current book, um, but on the condition that my previous contract has improved, um, let's say, improved royalties or improved rights. So just be aware that that can happen. It is hard, but it's definitely something I would recommend if you did find yourself in that situation where you agreed to terms initially and three years later or whatever, your book has done so well and you're resenting that book because the terms that you had initially agreed to are not beneficial in the least. All right, let's move to the next question, which kind of goes with what you just said. Any lessons you learned the hard way after becoming a full-time author? Anything you wish you'd know? Are there any books that you do resent? Let's hear about it. Something that I wish I'd known and that is actually, that actually has a huge effect on whether or not you can make writing full-time work for you is that if any part of the production schedule for your book is delayed, your payments will also be delayed. So for example, let's say that you're waiting on your edit letter from your editor and it's late, which is super common by the way, <laughs> but it's so late that you're actually starting to get close to that final manuscript delivery date listed in your contract. Then, you know, finally the edit letter comes in and your edit, your editor says she needs it back on. I don't know. We used the date June 1st earlier, but the delivery date was supposed to be April 1st. That means that that payment that you were expecting on April 1st is not going to happen. Like logistically, it just can't. So this is when things get really tricky because let's say that my first advance check was only going to get me through April because I was assuming by then I would be paid again. I could be short. I might have to dip into my emergency fund to cover those additional months. But then let's say I turn in my revisions and my editor decides I need another substantial round of developmental edits. What if she decides that there's so much work that still needs to be done that the book's release date needs to be pushed. Now that advance check is also getting pushed back again and there's nothing you can really do about it except, you know, have enough savings to cover those months in between. So, you know, if that scenario that I just walked us through gave you like heart palpitations, you're probably a very risk averse person like I am and therefore need to think really carefully about what kinds of safety nets monetary or otherwise are going to make you feel safe. Is that a part-time job instead of leaving the traditional workforce altogether? Is that a six month or maybe even a 12 month emergency fund instead of just three months? These are the things that you you'll need to figure out if you're going to take this leap because it's not easy 
and it's never a sure thing as we've been discussing, but it's not impossible. Um, if you have a plan, you just have to be able to plan for the unexpected as well as the expected. And I will add to that the, another um, thing that is not always sure is whether a small publisher will always be there or whether a small publisher will always be able to pay you ro- ro- pay your royalties. And um, when that happens, and it, I believe if you're agented, your agent may be able to, you know, um, rattle someone's chain and get your payment, but I was not agented when this happened to, to the small company uh, at the time that I sold them. And I, um, I did not get royalties, uh, the, the royalties every time. So you have to make sure that um, you, again, that you plan for that. And at, at one point I was told, well, do you want us to pay you in books? And when I, I was doing a lot of school visits and I said, okay, sure pay me in books, but it just so happened that that particular school visit that I was planning on did not materialize. And I ended up with a whole bunch of books. I would never, if I were to have that question again, I would never accept it. So there's, there's an awful whole lot of uncertainty, like Lakin said. Zoraida, you're on. Yeah, I, I, there's so much that I wish I'd known. I feel like I came into publishing this like wide eyed, uh, you know, dreamer. (laughs) And I think, you know, publishing was very quick to uh, break my heart and make me a realist, but that doesn't mean that you're always going to stay that way. Um, There's always going to be a new project to look forward to. There's always going to be a new opportunity. And I truly believe that. Um, I wish that I had known when to walk away, right? And that I should always trust my instinct, whether it's a contract or whether it's your relationship with your agent or whether it's a, uh, a question with your, a problem with your publisher, uh, always trusting your instinct because you're the one doing the, the majority of the work. You're doing the writing, you're doing the, the illustrating. So um, you're the talent, right? Everyone else is working for you. They're getting commissioned. They're getting a percentage of your royalties and an advance. Um, and so never, you know, never being able to forget that is something that, that is, that it's important to me now. Um, I, I think that, you know, what Lakin, uh, wait, um, the question I guess was, uh, like regrets and things like that. But I, I truly think that every, every book that I've written, sure. I regret working with a specific publisher or, uh, who is predatory or, um, staying in a relationship with an agent for too long, right? But those things are learning experiences and they still make me the author that I am now. And and I feel like without without having gone through that that trial by fire, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do now in worst case situations because I think that there will always be there will always be a situation like that. Um, I think I had I wish I had been more honest with conversations with my agent because people are not mind readers. And as writers, we create these scenarios. Everyone's mad at me. Like I did something wrong. I'm only lucky to be here. Right. And so if that, that those voices are in the back of your head, you need to have an, a conversation with your, with your agent. And if, and if you feel like you can't, then maybe you're with the wrong agent because you can't communicate and communication is the biggest part of maintaining 
a good, a successful um, career, I think. Um, so I think that's, that's my piece for that. Well, if I may add something, I wanted to um, go back to Lakin for a second and say that you do have a tool that I don't know if you've used in order to prompt that editor to, um, to return to you those, uh, those edits or those, you know, her suggestions or responses or, you know, whatever she needs to send you. And that is a, a tool that I've used myself. Uh, that is to tell her, um, listen, um, so-and-so, I need to work on this right now because by this date, I am actually starting work on another book that is already under contract. So if you don't return to me these by this date, then I won't be able to provide you the book by, by or the finished manuscript by the deadline written in the contract. So could you please do it? Please, please, please. You know, really, I've learned to do this with, of course, age and experience. You are the best advocate for yourself. So that, and um, I will also say, you know, to answer the question, uh, lessons that I've learned, I've learned that you need to market yourself and your work even after being in the market for, is gonna be, well, it is 40 years already. So you need to be also aware of the changes in the market. When I started, you know, this thing about the social media, of course, we didn't have internet back then. So imagine what has changed in four decades of what I've been doing in the children's book field. You need to be aware of how the market is changing and be adaptable, be fluid. Um, I wish I had been more forceful about asking the equivalent of a white male author illustrator of my same standing. And that is something that I do now. And I'm very proud that I do now, if I'm my own agent, I do it. I ask my editor, are you actually giving me the advance that I would give, you know, the same, the same advance that you would give a white male author of my standing? So if they say yes, I have to accept that answer. And then my last piece of advice, say yes. Whatever you do, like Soraida said, even if it's something that you wish years from now you hadn't done, you learn from everything you do. It's a, it, take it as a growing, learning experiences that make you grow as an author, as a creator of uh, children's books. That's it. I want to add to something there um, that Lulu said. Uh, this is Zoraida. I think that uh, I, 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 one thing that I also learned is to be cautious of my brand, right? When I am saying yes to all the projects, right? So as a writer Cordova, I write fantasy in every genre. Um, and then I have now started writing romance under a pen name, Zoe Castile. And I feel, and I wish that I had just switched, uh, the romances under as a a little sooner, because in that saying yes to everything, I feel like, you know, things got a little crossed. And so I feel like when you're, let's say you start doing nonfiction and to diversify, right. And, and middle grade and all that stuff, think about where everything falls in your brand. Um, I, I just want to add, I think, yes, everything is a learning experience. So you do have to accept that and embrace it in many ways. One of the lessons that I 
have learned is the assumption that when you sign your first contract or you get your first author, uh, <clears throat> your your first offer, uh, that everything magically falls into place and that all the doors are open for you. Uh, unfortunately, that is the case for very, very few people. So, yes, the signing of the contract is really only the first step or that that first offer is really only the first step. There's still so much more work that needs to be done and so much more things that you need to learn and experience and grow as a result from having these experiences. I just want to echo what everyone else said in terms of like feeling empowered and knowing your worth. My biggest regret is just putting publishers and agents on a pedestal and just thinking that why would they rep silly old little me? Um, and as soon as I um, changed that attitude and realized what's the right, I said that these people are making money off of me and I'm worthy and I'm, you know, I have something to say. I, I changed that attitude internally and then I started to sell more books. So I really think that that is my biggest lesson and I wish I'd done that sooner. Yeah, I mean, like, nobody's doing you a favor. You're the talent. <laughs> it's just our brains. They tell us the funniest things. Anyone have any last um, bits to add before we wrap up? Create. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining. If you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also sign up for Les Musa's newsletter to have podcast updates as well as other Musa news such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you for listening.